0: Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners, Design for Culture. Today, I am rejoined by Beth Van Wy. Beth, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you for having me
0: back. You are a returning guest, but to get started, for those who don't know you, could you remind our listeners who you are and what you do?
1: I am a senior project manager at Becker & Frondor where we do owners-rep project management for all kinds of different projects, specifically focused on museums, renovations, additions, and new
0: concepts. So your first appearance here, making the museum, was the famous episode eleven, Secrets of Complex Cultural Project Management, which is a must listen for anyone who wants to do that. If you're finding this show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or on Transistor, just go back to episode 11 and listen to that one, a must-listen, and you'll find out in that episode Beth's origin story of how she got into this (laughs) business. And in this case, though, we've got a great topic for today, and that's why Beth is here. She's got some things to share that I know for sure there are some listeners out there who need to hear this. So, I think we should get right into it. Here we go. Today's episode is Assembling a Collaborative Project Team with Beth Van Wy. Assembling a Collaborative Project Team. And as always, I know the list, but not much more, and my guest has the rest. Today, we have six points to go over. If you, the dear listener, would like to keep track, we'll count them down or count them up. And the first one, number one, is what is a project team? When we're talking about assembling a collaborative project team, which you've done many times, Beth, what is, what do you mean by a project team? Let's just define that from the onset.
1: Yeah, the project team is all of the different, is built of all of the different team members that help create your vision. Who is gonna be responsible for helping bring all of these ideas to fruition and in any stage of that process. So that team can be fully internal. It can be a partnership of internal and external. And a big piece of that is defining all of the different types of voices, expertise, and roles that you're going to need on that project team to really execute the process.
0: And when you say you, the people that you need, we're talking about museums or the person who's leading a project for a museum, are we going to be talking particularly today about museum building projects, things where we're literally making a museum or making part of the museum? Or does this apply to just about any kind of project that you might do that's similar?
1: I think it applies to any type of project, whether it's approaching a gallery renovation that you've had a long-term, some might call it a permanent gallery, and you're finally ready to renovate it or you're doing a major addition or renovation or even a building a museum from the ground up. Any one of these is going to need a unique project team to help really develop that project together.
0: So just to give our, our listeners a little bit of context before we dive into a little bit of an example, what would be some typical, any project team members that you could think of, for example?
1: The variety of project team members could range from exhibit designers, to architects, to lighting designers, to collection based registrars or curatorial teams, conservators, other museums that may be lending the bulk of your collect- their collection for your exhibition, fabricators. I could keep going and keep going. But there are a lot of different voices that could be part of this process to help it be
0: the most successful it could be. Got it. Okay. So you're talking about a like team with a big uh, capital T where a team member to do a museum project could even be another museum that's helping.
1: It could be. And I think a team could also be four people internally that are representing different departments from visitor experience, education, collections, and general exhibit operations. Those four people could be who you identify as your team, but making sure that you're clear on roles, responsibilities, and how you're going to get from big idea to opening day.
0: Got it. Okay. This is exactly what I was thinking we were going to be talking about. And I think this question of how do you assemble a team, it's almost like the the question that you ask before the first question, before the first question, because until you have your team put together, you don't have people to start asking. So that's what I meant when I said, I think there are a lot of people out there who want to hear about this, because one of the most difficult things you can grapple with any new project is where the heck to start and it seems like this is one of those sort of, in the alpha to omega world, this is definitely alpha. But that leads into your point number two, which I think is going to tell us how these teams have to vary. Point number two is every project has unique restrictions and opportunities. I guess we're saying no two projects are ever the same, even though they may seem the same. Have I got that right? Yes.
1: And I think part of how those differences those restrictions and opportunities are defined are going to be unique for every single project even if you're at the same institution doing the same gallery for example so you might start it out with a desire or direction from your board or from leadership to install a new exhibition in the space and if it's for a major bicentennial celebration versus a specific lender that they want to create an exhibition around their collection, you're going to start two different places with those. And I think that's where being able to start at the very beginning to say, what is our project and who is the team that we need to put into place makes that happen.
0: And I guess we're saying that because every project is unique, I guess every, everything is in proportions of the project types you mentioned at the beginning. Doing an entire museum from scratch is very different from as you just put it, renovating the same gallery a second time, where the first thing is, boy, there's a lot of blanks to fill in. Second thing is, the danger might be that we assume we have got all the blanks filled in, but maybe we don't. Is it, um, I guess it goes without saying, but we have to assume that uh, a team is going to be bigger and, and more complex somewhat in proportion with the relative scale and complexity of the project itself, or is that not true?
1: I think it can have levels of complexity based on where you are in the timeline of the project. So you may start out with a fairly simple process of identifying three or four people, regardless of the scale of the project, that help bring it to a next step. And it's almost, it's almost a choose-your-own-adventure of processes. But being able to start with uh, a small team that can identify what the goals are, what the process is, what levels of involvement do you need from outside people versus what can you handle inside? If you're a small organization that only has a staff of three, you might tackle either of these projects very differently than a staff of 40 or a hundred at a museum. So I think being able to first identify those restrictions of size, time, budget are big pieces that, and then start to set you up for understanding where there's opportunity to bring
0: in collaborative partnerships. Got it. For a little editorial comment, Beth, you just mentioned, choose your own adventure. I just happened to be reading an article about that book series. That's a book series that was around some years ago, and it was these little paperbacks for, I think it was young adult or for kids or whatever. It sounds like maybe you read some of those. I know I read some of those that little corner of my bookshelf. And in those, it would start, every every adventure would start with the same opening paragraph, same introductory short chapter. But then from there, the reader got to choose what the protagonist did or something. You'd have to skip to another chapter. So there could be dozens of potential endings in the book. If you made a chart, it would start with one thing and then it would branch out a lot. That's what we're talking about. So when you say a museum project is like the Choose Your Own Adventure book series, which I think has just been bought by someone has come back somehow, which is exciting for me anyway. That's what you're talking about, right? That it starts with a simple thing, but it starts to branch out and becomes more complex the further you go. It really depends on where in the project you are.
1: Exactly. And I think that complexity, there's not any one way to do the project. And even if you've been at an organization and done something over and over. If you were to go back and look at that process, you may find that it's not the exact same repeatable step. And at different points, you introduce different decision makers or different decision points that have to be addressed in unique ways.
0: Or you may decide to. For example, you, you might learn from As the it, previous project that uh, easy example you gave of renovating the same gallery or preparing it uh, twice in a row, doing it again. You might find that in the first go round, you could have consulted the community more. And so you learn from that and you're not going to put in that step. But now you have to figure out how are we going to do that, right? So it actually could be a, a choose your own adventure, right? You have to choose. All right, so point number three, I think, goes right with this, which is what museums can do internally versus when they need help. So uh, here's, I think, where you come in and where your firm comes in. Uh, At the point that you need help, they're going to go out and find the first group or person or firm that's going to help them. Is that where you come in? That's one question. But first of all, let's go back to your Uh, main point. Number three, what museums can do internally versus when they need help? What's your experience there?
1: So I think one of the best part of the beginning is whenever the internal project team or steward is for the process has to identify where they want to start and as project managers we love when we're called at the beginning we can help outlay a process and a roadmap and build that with you oftentimes you'll go to an architect or an exhibit designer or you may even start with the lender depending on what your project is and i think that piece is before you even identify who you're going to contact first is doing an honest analysis of your capacities internally. So often a new project comes along and it falls into your other duties as assigned uh, responsibilities, but you also have a day job of running all of the projects that you've already been doing, running the museum, running the, the floor, the front of the museum, and just take yeah. on the new task of managing the addition to a building, or renovating a gallery requires a lot of focus and a lot of physical energy and time. And so that first step of what capacity do you have internally to take something on, and is that the main focus that alleviates other duties that are on your plate?
0: Is there a a sort of a rubric or a formula that you could give the listener to, to figure out how to figure that out? In other words, let's say I (laughs) <laughs> I'm an executive at a museum, or um, I'm a leader at a museum, or I'm on the board of a museum, and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, we're gonna we're gonna do this great project. We're gonna build a new museum. We're gonna have a new wing. We're gonna renovate a gallery. We're gonna have a new exhibit. We're gonna do this groovy program over here. We're gonna put a bunch of stuff in a bus, and we're headed to Iowa. Whatever the project is that you're going to do, how how do you assess? For example, you're not involved in the project yet. How does how do the People who have the vision for the project honestly determine for themselves whether they need whether they need help or not.
1: First step is to look at the workload of the team in the museum and to say if this project were not to happen, how busy is everybody? What are they currently doing in their everyday to keep our vision moving forward, to care for the collection, to create engaging experiences for the visitor. If all of that is happening without this project on their plate, if this project is added to their workload, what is released? Are they either releasing them from doing other projects from having to care for a certain number of objects per year or bringing in a certain number of traveling exhibitions? If they're releasing them from those tasks, then they're creating space in their workload to be able to take something on. adding this is in addition to their load, then chances are they're going to either need other staff positions or other controls to help manage either their existing workload or this new project. or some combination of the two.
0: So there there are organizations, museums, other kind of culturals or what have you who have people on staff who are special project officers or special facilities or capital projects, project managers and things like that. I'm thinking of very large museums or more to the point, probably universities or large um, hospital networks or, or things like that, where there's just a thousand millions of square feet of space. And so you're making capital improvements so often you have someone on staff. But I would guess that for the average cultural organization, mid-sized museum or something akin to that, they don't have a person like that on payroll, right? What, what's your experience there? Is it is it relatively uncommon for you to meet the equivalent of you already working inside the museum? I imagine it is.
1: Typically so. Once in a while, somebody might have somebody that is either managing special projects because the organization has acknowledged that every year They have some big project that needs a focus and a management, but often there's not one person. There might be somebody in their exhibit team that is managing. There are already complicated series of projects that they have that are just the everyday, not something new and above and
0: beyond what their current processes are. So the way you just described it is do a little soul searching and check to see if everybody has a day job and they're busy in that day job. And when you were saying that, I was thinking, oh, won't the result of that formula always return the answer, yes, you need help? Because if indeed you've got a whole bunch of highly qualified people who would be excellent at doing this and they have nothing to do, you, you probably just don't have that, right? So the answer is probably often, if it's a major project, you probably do need to somehow augment the staff that you have, either by having a part-time person be full-time, or like you said, reassigning someone—you don't have to do visitor services anymore. We're going to get someone else to do that. You should do that, but in that case, someone has to handle the other things. It sounds like in most cases, unless it's a pretty small and slow-moving project that's optional, you will need to get some help, either internally or externally. Or did I? I'm I not looking at that. No, the right I way? think
1: that's accurate. <laughs> I think that's accurate, and I think. And organizations don't bring on somebody early, so they're tasking their already busy staff with managing and stewarding these big projects, and then don't understand why it's not moving fast enough or why something else isn't happening. And so, it's that first step of saying, How are we really asking our staff to do the job with two or three people? And once they Once you've moved past that and identified either we're relieving them of the other projects that they had to do to focus on that, or we're going to ask them to be in charge of it, but help give them the ability to find a team that can handle 90% of it while they're handling the 10% of internal, that's a lot easier for somebody to add to their plate of responsibilities rather than all of the
0: projects. So uh, I I think you're being very diplomatic. (laughs) I'm gonna be a little undiplomatic on your behalf. You can tell me it's not what you meant. It's it is, there's an implication in what you're saying that a good amount of the time an organization makes a decision to have the people they already have try to pull it off. And that turns out to be a bad idea. That turns out to, everyone does, it turns out, have a day job. And everyone does become a little bit regretful that now they have to do all of this and maybe all of the job of the other person who just left and now all of this as well. Do you, do you find, I know you're being very diplomatic, but do you find <laughs> that? Uh, I'll put it this way. Do you find that could theoretically be true in some cases?
1: In many cases, but it's true. I think the challenge, and I understand this, that everybody has limited resources, financially, staff, et cetera. But understanding where you can invest thoughtfully in the project process to bring it to a more sustainable forward. Sorry, that doesn't make sense. Wherever you can bring the team together by making an investment in your staff, in the process, is going to return many fold to delivering successful
0: projects for your organization. Got it. And you just said everybody has limited resources. You and I have known each other for a while. I know some of the projects that you've done, and I know some of the projects that you've done are actually very large, just in terms of their size and in terms of their the dollars, et cetera. And everybody has limited resources, right? But do you think it's true that in the cultural sector of museums that somehow their resources are in some way apples to apples more limited for a capital project than others? I I did a little article recently where I was... I just check to see if an Apple store builds a new store on a square foot basis, what do they spend on building a new store versus a museum? What do they spend on a per square foot basis? And it turns out that a lot of the time, the museum project on a per square foot basis is spending a heck of a lot more than what you might think would be the, the rich for profit. What's your take on that? I'm putting you on the spot here, but we always say it's limited resources because our clients are often nonprofit. But does nonprofit mean they have no resources? What's, your, what's been your experience?
1: I think a big piece of that is the time that is invested and expected of the staff and other museum organization to invest in a project. I would imagine that the building of the Apple Store, for example, is similar. Repeat understand your community that you're going into deal with all of the local building codes, build the project, but they're not spending time understanding storytelling and visitor experience and how we're going to showcase the collection and they're tasking their staff with a lot of that work and whomever the project team is to do that. So it takes a lot longer to build that experience and that story that wants me Installed as an exhibition experience, then I would think the Apple Store that is in some manner a repeat of the experience
0: over and over. I think you're, yeah, you're, yeah that's a pretty good clarification because, the, as you pointed out in your earlier point, every one of these museum and cultural projects is different. They're all unique, they're all one offs. Whereas my attempt to compare it to the cost per square foot of an Apple Store kind of does fall flat because that Apple Store is a rollout. Right, they did one unique one at the beginning. They did the original pilot program, which cost them umpteen dollars as they tried to figure out the formula for everything. But over time, you get that kind of that graph where things fall into a long tail plateau, and they can. Yeah, you can bet. I just read recently there are 40,000 Starbucks around the world, believe it or not, mostly in the US, number two, China, et cetera. Mind boggling. But they've got that down to a science. And the projects you work on are not down to a science. They're all unique, as you just pointed out. So, yeah, I'm not making a fair comparison.
1: But I think there is a comparison in there in that they've defined the team and they use that team on repeat. So, once Apple figured out or Starbucks said, this is who we're going to work with they typically try to build the same team and hit repeat. So understanding who your team is and how you're able to build a team that is able to help you execute projects regularly and in some extent efficiently is a way to help you figure out how to best streamline the process as a whole.
0: Can I, before we're gonna do a halftime show in just a second here, before we do that, I wanna back way up for just a minute because of what we're going to talk about after the halftime. And just could you define for our listeners a little bit more about what you do? Because I know, having been in many projects, we're both in the same world, I think people are often asking, what is an owner's representative? What is an outside project management firm? What what is that? They're trying to get their heads around it. What Can you break down a little, go a little bit deeper into what your firm does, and and how you are part of the team. Because I think one of the reasons we're talking about the subject is that your firm in a complex project would be one of the first ones hired and then would be helping to do the thing we're talking about today, which is assembling the collaborative team. So because you'd be one of the first people on the ground, a firm like the one that I manage would not be one of the first. Ideally, it shouldn't be. It would be y'all. Say a little bit more about what you do and why it is That you're one of the first to show up
1: sure Uh, as the owner's rep or project manager we are an extension of the owner's team of the client of the museum and part of where that's unique to saying hiring the architecture team or the exhibit design team that has somebody on staff that does project management our goal is that we're working directly with the owner of the museum to help make their vision move forward. We're not the design team helping just manage the production of the graphics or the drawings to get out to engineers. We're helping make sure that all of the owners need the building museum or the building committee's deadline, the board deadline, the internal recording structures that are happening, making sure that we're aligning your overall project budget and schedule with all of the different moving parts. But as you are person. And that's where if you don't have somebody on staff that can manage the complex projects, we plug into that to help really move that project forward because it's a finite amount of time. And that's where we're able to, because we're doing these projects every day, help ask the complex questions, what can you do internally versus maybe need to hire outside. And through so that really start to understand what your unique needs are in your cultural institution that may be different than others that are related to how housing.
0: What your firm is, or one of your titles, owner's representative project manager, there you go. You are representing the owner and you are pro- you are managing the project, right? So this is a nerdy question I'm about to ask, but when we say representing the owner, is that, I'm curious about this myself because I've never seen one, a contract between your firm and your your client, the owner, are you like a sports agent? Is it like an agent or a real estate agent, <laughs> you know, where that word agent means that you literally have agency, like you, you represent the owner and you speak for them. Do you make decisions for them or are you a consultant who is helping them and then Giving them the decisions to make. Like, how does that? I I, told, I warned you, it was like a geeky question.
1: We're not making the decision, but we're helping gather what the decision points may be. So there may be forty hours of back and forth on three different locations for electrical outlets in a gallery, and we're working through the logistics of why they could go here or over here, for example. And our goal is to help make the owner not have to go through those 40 hours of meeting but to bring back to them the to think okay we've gone through engineering we've gone through pricing we've gone through all of the impacts of putting the power at this point on the wall or at this location on the wall here are the two choices here are the pros and cons from engineering from impact to your schedule from all of these things so they're able to either make a decision or ask a few more questions, but one hour of their time for 40 hours of our time. And I hope we don't spend 40 hours
0: on one electrical outlet location, but stranger things have happened. I know, never. Strange things never happen on these projects. <laughs> okay, so you're not, that's clear. That was, sorry, that was a bit of a geeky question. Okay, let's do a little halftime show and then we'll come back with a few more geeky questions. Quick station identification here. If you're just joining, you're listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners Design for Culture. Hey, if you find this show valuable, please help spread the word. You can rate the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or you can write a review in Apple Podcasts in particular. You can also just tell a friend to check out makingthemuseum.com for everything about this podcast and its sister newsletter. Thank you so much for everybody who has made this podcast a five-star rated podcast so far. And nobody run over and put one star in there. Now back to the show. Today, we are talking with Beth Van Wy, about assembling a collaborative project team. And our next point, remember, we've got six points. We're halfway through. Next up must be point number four. Indeed, it is. Point number four. Number four, timeline for adding staff. Partners and consultants. I'm glad we're getting to this in the timeline of our show. Talking about the timeline. If you stretch that timeline out over time, have little dots along it. That's when you add team member A. A little bit later, you add team member B, team member C. Tell me more about. Tell me more about that. Do I have that right? And is it always the same timeline? Is it always the same sequence, more or less, in that choose your own adventure?
1: is definitely not the same sequence in that choose-your-adventure. And I think this is that moment where we're getting to the choose adventure experience of projects and creating collaborative teams. So a big part of it is when you're defining your project, is understanding some of those elements that are saying, is this fully internal? Is it impacting the base building? Is it just within a defined exhibit gallery? Is it impacting the rest of the site or a property that you haven't yet moved the collection to? And I think once you're able to start to define the levels of complexity is when you can start to define the timeline for adding the partners and consult. So if you've made the decision at the beginning in defining your project team and understanding how much you can handle internally versus externally, and you're at the stage of saying we need some additional parts we want to grow this beyond where we are, we have resources that we're able to take on some additional help. I think that first step is then identifying where all of this work is leading to, is it, are you at the very beginning of wanting to say, we need to do a master plan or campus plan and we need design in place to then go do massive fundraising? Or have you already received a grant to do a project? Those are two very different starting points. But I think that piece is really critical to understand do we bring on a project manager now? Do we, and that they're on the project for the next two or three years? Or do you bring somebody in for six to eight weeks to help do some feasibility study work? And that feasibility can be from a design perspective. It could be from a fundraising perspective. It could be from a, how logistically would we run this project? And where are the likely roadblocks that we would hit from environmental concerns, architectural building concerns, or do we even get the artifacts that we want to put on display to help understand how you then move to the next stage?
0: So you just mentioned just in, in one subcategory, many categories within that. So one of your examples was, do we do a feasibility study? For example, is that one of the things? Do we? Or you also said, do we need to go fundraising? Do we already have a grant? Do we need to bring in a project manager? But you just said, do we need to do a feasibility? And then you quickly broke that down into a whole bunch of flavors. You said, is it a design feasibility, fundraising feasibility, architectural feasibility, environmental impact feasibility? I think I got that right, right? I think you said all that. Every one of those sounds to me like that might be a different collaborative team member. You could, people who do feasibility for fundraising, which I think means is it feasible that with our community we can raise the funds to do this? Those would be different team members, different consultants, different experts than architects. That's obvious.
1: 100%.
0: Yeah, and both of those are different than someone who might do environmental feasibility, which I'm thinking of like an environmental impact statement at EIS in case you're, uh, where I'm involved in a project right now. There's a set of museums in what is essentially a, a uh, just to be blunt about it, a swamp, a wetland. So the question is, what are the environmental implications of any work that you might do on that site? Do I have that right? And and am I right that every single one of those might be a different project partner?
1: A hundred percent. And I think that's where the early work of starting to figure out what are you handling internally versus externally is in defining what your project is. And you may find that You need to do that feasibility study. And then once you've completed that, you learn that, yes, we think we can raise the money. Then understanding, well, in order to raise money, we need some sort of concept design so that we have the pretty pictures to put on the fundraising asks. And so then you want to develop the tools that are needed to help bring a team on board. And who is that team? Is it architectural? Is it exhibit? It's a combination of the two. And that's where helping define who you need is when you start adding that staff and who those partners are. You can get down to the stage of saying, okay, we've now raised the money. We've got all of our ponders on board. We have a building. We know where the gallery is. We're using our own collection. And you say, now we need an exhibit designer. What else do we need? Do we need media? Do we need lighting? Do we need case consultants? Do we need anyone to do special high security? Depends what objects are going out. So I think every level of the project and the process could potentially have a different team and the order in which you bring those onto the team is going to change for every type of project
0: it's going to change for every type of project but there must be some in my experience i think can i think of an exception to this maybe i could if i thought about it long enough i I think there's a general pattern so you're not going to hire if we go back to the previous discussion and all of your people do have a day job and you don't have someone who's waiting to have their day occupied with managing a, a capital project and they have to know how to do that, etc. Let's say that I'm the leader of a museum or a cultural institution and I've got a campus of different museum buildings. And I want A donor has indicated that they would love to fund the creation of a new building or a new wing in my campus somehow. And I'm like, oh, terrific. It's going to be great project to do. It's going to be great for the community and for the world at large. Let's do it. So if you took a deck of playing cards and every one of the playing cards had, like you talked about the Choose Your Own Adventure book, I'm switching metaphors, playing cards, and every one of those playing cards had the name of a potential team member on it. You've got owners representative, you've got architect, you've got environmental impact statement lawyer, you've got You've got security consultant, you've got specialty case consultant, you've got exhibition designer. You you can't just throw the cards up in the air and they land wherever. It's very likely that certain of those cards are going to be at the beginning of the timeline and certain ones are down towards the end, right? right. Like you, you probably, right. one of the first people, like I said before, one of the first people that you're going to hire is going to be you. Isn't that Often, your experience it- that there are... Give me a gin up uh, an example sequence as we're talking about the timeline of bringing on museum partners. What would be the typical first batch typically?
1: So, the first batch, if you're starting with this scenario of you need to build a new building and it's going to showcase exhibitions, you would likely start with your project manager or owner's rep. And if that's somebody in house, you've got them in place or you're hiring them out about you bring them on and then you'd select your architect it wouldn't make sense to start with your object conservator yet because you don't know where you're headed but if you're starting with the architect to start with the big vision thinking about the architect and their team they're likely going to have some engineering they're going to have a variety possibly landscape design as part of that and hopefully also an experienced design person and i think that's where having that process of building visitor experience possible creating of the spaces is where you're gonna start. And from there, then go into the next phases of what's going in those spaces. How are people using them? How do people look through them? Where are their exhibitions? Where are their education experiences? All of those different elements we start to build on top of that.
0: You said something there that made my ears go go perk up, made my antenna stick right up, which is that the design team would hopefully also include an experienced design person. I think when you say experienced design person, you're talking about me. It sounds like you're advocating that when you begin doing the design, that in the case of a museum, that of course there's the technical complexity, the site-specific complexity, the engineering, the energy, et cetera. Obviously we need to have the uh, professional technical team that knows how to build or renovate buildings. But it sounds like you're advocating at the same time, almost in the same breath, and it sounds like I'm very biased, I'm not actually, in this case, that you also would have an experienced person as well, meaning someone who would do the conceive the exhibitions, conceive of what visitors to the place will be experiencing at the same time. I've experienced that both ways, and different than that, that sometimes the Exhibitioner experience designer is hired first, and the architect second. Sometimes the architect first, and sometimes the exhibitioner experience people much later than that. Sometimes at the same time in one team. How? What's your take on it? Have you experienced all those possibilities as well? I'm going to put you on the spot as, uh, again. Do you have a preference? What do you tell your clients is ideal if they can have it?
1: So interestingly, I have experienced all the different makes and models. Where we've been first, and we help select an architect. We've been first, and we help select the experienced designer. The client has selected the experienced designer first, and then the architect, and then we come on board halfway through. I've had the whole mix, and I think part of that is being driven by what are the project goals, and if a piece of that is. Your team is saying that we want to really understand Somebody's coming to visit our museum and their visit starts with when they turn off the highway and they're trying to find our building, then that's a different thing than saying, they're already here. We know they're here. We've got to create a new building. And then we're going to think about the gallery down the road. I'm a big proponent, and I think we really try to draft our documents when we're selecting an architect, that we want somebody on the team, even if it's not about the final exhibition experience inside galleries, but it's about just that visitor flow, that experience of approaching and engaging with the building, coming into a space and transitioning from street to building, street to gallery, to really be part of that process and not a finish one and then start the next. We would much rather be a collaborative.
0: So you've seen it, you've seen it both ways. Let's say in the situation mm-hmm. of, give you another hypothetical, now I'm really showing my bias here, but so be it. In this other, I'll give you another hypothetical, we're going to make a new new museum and it's going to be in where you are. It's going to be in Philadelphia and it's going to be the Museum of Love. And it's going to be, we've got, the sp- we've got the spot, we've got the property, the donors are all lined up and now we just have to start figuring out what it's going to be. Would you advocate, and it's going to be a big one and there's all going to be all kind of immersive technology and all sorts of stuff like that. Would you advocate having hiring the architect first and then an exhibition and experienced person down the road by X time, doing them at the same time, doing the reverse? In that scenario, what would you advocate? No pressure. Well, this is not like a you quiz. You just started
1: creating this major experience that is an immersive experience from the start. You have to have your immersive experience design team at the table at the beginning. It would be much more challenging to design a static building or space and get that done and then apply immersive to that rather than working together. And I think that's part of why um, we're a collaborative project team is that dialogue wants to happen throughout the entire process to create those fluid experiences and fluid spaces that are leading to what your goal is. Now, if you had said it was a museum that's all about love in Philadelphia and it's okay, showcasing love postage stamps, maybe that's a different experience in a different order in which you're starting. But as soon as you add the immersive experience of being one of the drivers, that wants to define who you want at the table immediately.
0: So it really goes back to your point number two earlier. Every project has unique restrictions and opportunities, and therefore there's... Your answer is your answer to my question is essentially it depends.
1: It is, and I might be biased as a recovering architect, but I wanted to start with a visitor experience. I think creating uh, a building without concern for the visitor moment and create somewhat of a void, and wanting to have that collaborative process at the beginning is going to help take your vision as the museum and describing it where they're going to pick up on those words of immersive or emotional or however you're describing it in a way that you may not be able to translate without them being part of that listening,
0: experiencing process. I guess also recovering architect here, I guess it also has to do with the pie (laughs) chart of how much is this and how much is that, for example, in that, that idea The project I just suggested, the Museum of Love in Philadelphia. By the way, let's do that museum. We shouldn't do that museum. (laughs) Now that I think about it, we could use more of that in the world, right? In that situation, if the Museum of Love was doing a project that really renovating HVAC, that really a lot of deferred maintenance, they've really got to renovate this thing. And in addition, there's a small gallery they want to make a new exhibit in. In that case, if the pie chart was like 90%, architecture and engineering just fixing things up and 10% the other thing, in that case, you you probably could hire the 90% people first and have them work for a while. But if the reverse were true, if the Museum of Love just had a beautiful gallery ready to go and they wanted to create a new experience in it, and while they were at it, they wanted to do a little bit of HVAC changing, you might flip it around. You might have the experienced people come in first and spend a good amount of time and then when available, go get the AE. So it's basically, it depends, but it's not, it depends. Woo woo, roll the dice. It again, goes back to your point number two. It depends on the unique situation of the project, what's required by the project. So you, there's, there's, you already answered my question. That's what you're really saying. All right. Six points. Number five, owner's reps, museum planners, architects, exhibition designers, who else? And I think that point is going to, what's the Who are the people who would be on the team? I put you on the spot before and you started very expertly rattling off a whole bunch, including curators. You talked before about security experts. Are there any key team members that the two of us haven't mentioned yet? I don't think there is. I think we've gotten to all the usual suspects. So, first question is, have we? Maybe we just want to recap what they often are. And then maybe I could ask, are there any, what's the most out-of-the-ordinary team member that you had to bring on. But let's start with the basics. Do we have it right so far?
1: Covered most of them. I think we could also, often there's lighting design, collection, consult, and potentially an IT, AV experience. So more things are becoming much more interactive. It's more than adding electrical or data into places, but really thinking about how you manage all of those, so that- the tech technological changes that are constantly evolving.
0: I'll, I guess you. you could it's, uh, Typically, lighting well. design, AV, IT. AV means audiovisual, IT. What does IT mean? Information. And information
1: technology.
0: Information mm-hmm. technology. That's what it means. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's not just the word it. Those are often, if they're the engineering side of that, those are often uh, team members which are not independently hired. They're part of the group of subconsultants that an architect would bring with them, or perhaps an exhibition or experience design firm would bring with them. But you did just bring up something, or I am reading between the lines, sometimes a museum will want to do something out of the ordinary, specific, and spectacular along the lines of audiovisual. A generation ago, everyone wanted an IMAX theater, for example. Now we've used the word immersive several times. There are a number of firms out there who are well-known for doing nothing but immersive technology experiences. And often we find that museums might even talk to them first in some cases, Mm -hmm. uh, but they might set aside a a part of the project knowing in advance that they want to have that. The equivalent of what many years ago you would have done in an IMAX theater. So whatever we do, we're going to have an IMAX theater. So we better call those IMAX folks. That, That would be another one, right? I assume that We haven't talked about that, but there are special experience people, AV or media experience people of the time that you might also engage in. They could do a big chunk of the project, right?
1: And I think that I've worked on projects where the client had gone to a lot of museums and other experiences, and they identified the type of experience they wanted to start their project with and brought on those interactive experience designers start their initial concept visioning, what that process was going to be, and from that, then hired an architect to do the shell around it, hired their exhibit fabricator, and then separately hired an AV integrator. And I think that is very different than the engineers that were on the architect's team. The architect's team was making sure power and data went to all of the places, but the AV integrator was who worked directly with the exhibit fabricator to build the walls that all of the LED panels were going into or the monitors that were being suspended in really unique ways or how to run those and how to send the feed of the data to those. There's a lot of complexity in how you get content into these immersive experiences. And so the AV integration is a big piece of it often isn't thought it we came up with this beautiful idea and somebody can build it and there's complexities in the building of those. I, I haven't met a fabricator that can't come up with a way to do that there's some of the most creative unique individuals that have just these visions of how to create these spaces but they have to have the team in place to
0: do it so uh little jargon watch there we've defined this before on the show but for listeners to this show I just want to make sure that everyone understands what we mean when we say AV integrator AV integrator is usually a not always but often a fairly sizable firm that will both do the engineering of the audiovisual hardware and equipment and systems and as integrators will most often either be hired for or at least have a business in buying that equipment and bringing it on site setting it up and getting it running Hooking everything together and making sure that before they leave, it's all working. Yeah. Do you have the same definition of that term as I do? Okay, good. I think what, one, of, one of our past guests was an <laughs> AV integrator, and, and that was the definition that, that they get. So I'm just doing a little jargon check here. Another, here's a question I'm going to, I keep saying, I'm not going to put you on the spot, but okay, so I'll, I'm going to put you on the spot. What do you, how do you advise clients on the, and how to do audiovisual in a way that is sustainable financially and in terms of audience interest and trends. We just talked about immersive. Immersive is a big, is it a trend? Is it here to stay? No one knows. We're in the middle of it. But there was a time between five and 10 years ago where every museum conference was talking about the museum of ice cream and its implications. The, from now on, every museum is an Instagram trap. That. It's something we don't talk about as much anymore. How do you advise clients to think about audiovisual? Do they, do you ever have clients who are their eyes are bigger than their stomachs or they're they're investing too much in a technology that is very possible it's gonna last as long as I like to say as a gerbil?
1: A lot of it and this might come from my having been in house in museums for a while and having to deal with the, the dreaded phone call that the touch is no longer working or speaker has blown and we don't have a spare. So I think part of what I talk about with clients is thinking about how does this experience operate or run if that piece is not there and then making sure that it's not so dependent on it that there's no experience left if that thing goes down or if something happens or, if it's, or it's purely audio and somebody's deaf and they're in the space and so how do you create these experiences that can be driven in many different ways? Now, if they have the capacity in health to manage a highly complex and digitally-based experience, then understanding that their staff is part of that process and part of that design team, also thinking about how many spares do you buy for something, or do you design it in a way that when the monitor goes down, you can pull that piece, put in something static instead of just putting a sign on it that says interactive is not working. And so I think that piece of it is just helping ask the questions of the role the technology is playing, what is it delivering that may be different and unique, That is it's part of why you're driving visitors to the space to experience that's different than elsewhere, but also being an understanding of their capacity to manage it midterm and long term.
0: Here's that. We've got one point left, but before we go to that, I want to ask a question. Everything you're saying, during when we are recording, I am taking notes myself and I'm often taking notes furiously because the people who are on the show often have, well, and it goes without saying that what you have to share is very valuable. So I'm catching some of that myself. A lot of what you're saying, the way you say it, it sounds like you're accustomed to saying it. You have, it's very fluent You have examples readily at hand in the choose your own adventure metaphor. Each time I've asked you a question, you're like, I I can see that you're saying, oh, we're down that branch. If you go down that branch and you turn left, (laughs) you go this way, but you shouldn't turn left that way. You should go that way. And you should. So you've navigated all the potential branches of this choose your own adventure that we're talking about. Is this written down anywhere? You and I often go to the building museums, and by the way, congratulations on being a building museums advisor, board member, mentor, on Muckety Muck, which haven't recently. Board member, right?
1: Yes, I joined the Mid-Atlantic Association of Museums Board, and one of their two conferences is the Building Museums Conference, which focuses on all of these types of projects. And I think that's where what's not written down, I don't have a cheat sheet of answer, we have not yet published the studio Own Adventure, Um, A lot of it comes from going to those sessions and hearing how others have dealt with crazy projects and crazy problems and unique to themselves. I I remember a panel from two years ago of a museum that was being built on Pikes Peak and how they had to make sure they designed all of it to go on trucks that didn't have a, a distance between the wheels of greater than 19 feet because they couldn't physically get to the top of the mountain not a problem that every museum has to deal with, but a problem that had to be solved. And I think that's where listening to all of those types of sessions has helped think about whether it's a project like one that you've worked on, Jonathan, of how do you get your exhibit to the top of the Empire State Building? is very different than uh, to the top of a mountain or into a lower level where all of the doors are only two foot eight wide and you can't physically move something between them. So just understanding the the unique challenges, and hearing how others have dealt with them can help you think about what are the types of questions that are unique
0: mm-hmm. to ourselves. So going to the uh, Building Museums Conference is a good way. They also have a workshop the day before for people who are considering one of these, and it's a great way to get into it. But I guess what I'm wondering is, should Beth Van Wy write a book? Because it's it feels <laughs> to me like there's a book inside you. That's what it feels like to me. It's There's a book that wants to get out. I'm just going to... I'm just that, going to float be our that next out project, there. <laughs> All right. Okay, point number 6 after I convince you to write a book. Point number 6 is the role of RFQs and RFPs in team building. First, I'll ask you for our listeners just to define because actually there's a lot of lack of clarity on this question though you think there wouldn't be. To define what does RFQ stand for? What does RFP stand for? How are those two things related? And then we'll get to this question, the role of RFQs and RFPs in team building.
1: And are RF- is a request for qualification. It's often something that uh, is asking a much smaller list of whomever you're sending it to, and we'll come back to what that means. An RFQ is a request for a proposal. So often it is work hand in hand, and typically you'll hear, you'll say, oh, we need to hire an architect. We should put out an RFP, a request for proposal from architects. There, to get a good proposal, It's a very complex process and it's a very dense amount of information that you're asking the design team to put together. So the role of the RFQ and RFP in that team building is to help you as a museum find the right partner. We're big proponents of starting with an RFQ so that you can reach out to a much broader audience to find who might be a really good partner, who is somebody that you hadn't complained ever working with or how can you find some unique partnerships that if you were only asking two or three people for proposal, you wouldn't even know to go to and part of how we suggest building our few teams or lists those we might receive that is to put a pretty broad uh, reach out so that you can start to not go just to the three architects that you're Board members have recommended, but that maybe you can look at other similar projects by like going to like building museums or other conferences where you said, oh, they worked with this team and this group worked with that team. and Here's the unique project that I saw. And if you start to get a broader reach. We're also part of why we recommend the RQ is that it's asking, it's a lighter lift for design teams and architects to put together so that they can show you a sampling of here's who we are, here's a little bit about how we would approach a project like yours, here's how we work in in our process. So you're investing, if you're on a selection committee at the museum, you're investing the amount of time to read that, but it's not a hundred page package times 20 teams that you're trying to decipher It's a smaller package of samples or letters that you can then say, oh, here's some unique groupings that I hadn't really thought about as partners, but they seem to really align with
0: who we are as an organization. I have a lot of questions about your point number six. (laughs) First of all, it's so RFQ, RFP, and it's in that order. Can't do it in the other order. How long does this take? I think a lot of our listeners are going to be like, that sounds complicated. How long does that take roughly speaking? Is that two weeks? Is that two years?
1: It could be a six to eight week process from releasing an RFQ to final interviews of the RFP process, depending on the complexities that are part of it, but if you are putting out an RFQ, that's a shorter process where uh, you may send it to 15 to 25 teams, depending on what you're working on. You may only send it to five, depending on what the detailed piece is, but you send that out, you get your packages back. You then go through those, those qualifications packages and say, okay, here's, seven that we think are really great or five that we think we want to know more we want to know what their proposal would be for this project so then you would send that group your request for proposal they would then spend three four weeks putting together all their packages they may need to come do a site visit they might need there might be a series of questions where they want to know more from you and you need to respond to that that request for proposals may they ask them to put together a team so they're needing to find engineers or exhibit designers or interactive designers to put them into their team to then send you a proposal and from that you might interview two of them sometimes more but really trying to understand how many and we love saying go do a studio tour as the interview or have them come to you depending on how that works but you want to find that right partnership because Ultimately, there are a lot of amazing designers and architects and experienced designers out there, but you want to find the team that you want to spend the next three years working on a project with. Who's going to really challenge you and help bring out the best of your project? Who's got all of the right parts and pieces that best complement what your capacities are in-house, how are they working with your local experiences, and how all of that goes together.
0: So where do you look for names? to put on an RFQ list? You just said, if it's a big, I assume if it's a little project, you don't try to find 20 firms to put in an RFQ. You might keep it simpler and just get someone that's been successful before. But if it's a large project and you have time and it's quite consequential, you might do that. How do you find the names to, like for, and if you're looking for an architect, how do you make sure you've you've beat the bushes? What's your process? Is there a standard way of doing it? You're gonna tell me it depends, I know. But what would be for somebody who's getting into this, they're listening in and they're like, oh, okay. What's that process like before you have the RFQ? In other words, the total time of RFQ, RFP is like you just said. But before the RFQ, you have to get the names. How do you get them?
1: I think part of that is uh, something we call benchmarking, where we say look at similar organizations or other projects that you think were really well executed or And this is one of the things I tell my clients. I also tell the designers, but I also want to know if the client team has been to projects they didn't like, because we want to make sure we don't don't put them on on a list if they didn't like the outcome, or we want to understand maybe what happened in that project. Because they're like, we like these six by that team, but not this one. So something to consider. But a big piece of it is as the owner doing benchmarking, looking at similar scenarios. Asking your board often, if you are at a nonprofit, your board has opinions, especially architects. I think it's one of those fields that everybody knows an architect or everybody's uncle's daughter is an architect, and so they all have somebody that they want on the list. Whether or not museums or nonprofit work is their expertise, the RFQ allows you to have this broader reach to help do that. Also, going to conferences, going to building museums, or annual meeting or regional conferences, Museum Next, AA. We'll just throw out all the initials of various museum conferences. But those are a great way to start to look as well, reaching out to your local organization to see who else is doing some of this. And as our group, we've built a lot of relationships with a lot of different architects, designers, whether they're projects we're currently working on or the other side of our firm does cost estimating and all of their clients are architects. So we've got a broad list of firms that we're working with and we'll try to we'll start with a big list and work with your owner's team to go through those to say are these buildings or experiences that seem to align with what you think your vision is and then we'll move to the next step of gathering information through RT process.
0: do you see more firms coming or do you seek firms or do you see more firms showing up or do you see clients talking about more firms that are international Days in that process I mean, of putting I, together the names for the RFQ, is it as you're spreading your lens and looking further, is it becoming more international? Is the world becoming smaller?
1: Yes, and no, it depends on the project. So, some we've had where architecturally they have a much broader reach, whereas the design, maybe for some of the conceptual work, but often there's partnerships. I haven't been on any projects that have gone fully international. I've actually had the opposite where they're wanting more and more local regional for the in-person. And I think this is maybe coming out of COVID and realizing the benefit of physically sitting around a table to collaborate and have a dialogue and conversation and working through concept ideation is really important. So I've I've actually seen more of that starting to happen where they want more local, more regional
0: participation in the process. Got it. Interesting. When you were talking a minute ago, there's some I could hear some sirens in the background. And I was imagining that, well, I heard this sort of distantly in the background. I imagine that was your crack team of researchers who were going out urgently to find new names of the very best designers to bring back to your clients. That's what I was imagining. Was that, is that did I get that right? Was it was that what those sirens? That's exactly
1: it. That was our vendor catalog growing exponentially. That's
0: right. They just go right through the red lights. They're looking for <laughs> a new potential. They're looking to build collaborative project teams and they'll skirt the law to get there. This is great. We got through all, all six of our points, including some potential illegality. Let's do a quick recap. Our list for today was assembling a collaborative project team with Beth Van Wy our repeat guest, and number one was what is a project team, number two, every project has unique restrictions and opportunities, number three, what museums can do internally versus when they need help, number four, the timeline for adding staff, partners, and consultants, number five, owners, reps, museum planners, architects, exhibition designers, who else, and number six, the role of RFQs and RFPs in team building. How did I do? We got you got everything. Anything else we should pick up?
1: Get yeah, it exactly. All
0: Thank right. You. Excellent. Beth Van why, it's been great to have you back on the show. If listeners would like to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Email, website, LinkedIn. We'll have your coordinates in the show notes as well. But for those who are listening,
1: email is great. LinkedIn also works, or you can hunt maybe down in person at the Building Museums Conference this spring. In Philadelphia. So come
0: visit. Great. Let's spell out the email on the LinkedIn. Now spell out your email for people who are walking the dog right now and want to send you an email.
1: Email. Yeah. Email is B is in Beth Van Y, V A M W H Y at Becker All
0: right. By the way, have I ever told you you have the coolest name in the business? There's <laughs> that Simon Sinek book, Start with Y. And he was basically referring, like, you know, just call Beth. That's really what he was saying. I appreciate that. That's the best name in the business. Okay, I think we covered it. Thank you, dear listener, for your time exchange. I hope this episode gave you some news you can use. If you would like to get in touch with me or you have an idea for the show, go to makingthemuseum.com and hit contact. You can also find me on LinkedIn under Jonathan Alcher or at the website of my firm, C&G Partners. And by the way, this podcast has an older sister. It's a one-minute newsletter Under the same name, one quick insight each time for museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience pros. You can subscribe to that at makingthemuseum.com. There's a big subscribe button in the menu at the top. Meanwhile, I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.